0: However, over time, as much as I loved running those databases, I became frustrated with how they were shackles almost on customer innovation and customer operability. And so we developed this system called Amazon Aurora, which changed out the storage system underneath. Postgres and MySQL. Obviously, we couldn't do that for the commercial databases. And we made those databases so much more resilient, so much more durable, so much more available. But we kept running into the fundamental limits of a rigid architecture, of high failover times, and a single primary architecture, which meant that the blast radius of a system going down or a plan changing in Oracle database, I mean, takes down a whole company.
1: What you build shouldn't be limited by your database. CockroachDB, the most highly evolved SQL database on the planet, lets you build without worrying about scale, operations, or uptime. Spin up a free cluster and learn more at cockroachlabs.com slash stackoverflow. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am Ben Popper, director of content here at Stack Overflow, and I am joined today by my colleague, Ryan Donovan. Hey, Ryan.
2: Hey, Ben, what's the news?
1: So we do a dev survey every year, and we ask developers what are their most loved and wanted and dreaded languages. And when it comes to databases, we often hear about a little company called MongoDB. So I guess from your perspective, looking out at the big world, It seems like this is something that doesn't change. It's like remained popular, quite popular for a number of years. And we thought it'd be interesting to chat with them. We get a lot of pitches even, I think, you know, sort of in this very area. Tell people, you you handle the pitches, so I'll let you speak to that. Yeah,
2: I mean, I think Mongo has uh, done a a really good job of of kind of being the primary uh, NoSQL database in people's minds. We got a draft in about NoSQL, and it was saying NoSQL databases are document stores which is what, what Mongo databases are. It's kind of taken over that brain space.
1: Yeah, yeah, it kind of defines that category. I think that's right. Yeah. Well, we have a great guest today, Mark Porter, the CTO at Mongo. So Mark, welcome to the show.
0: Well, thank you very much for having me today. I'm excited to talk about all the stuff you guys have already been talking about.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we're trying to lead it in there a little, give a little bit of a lead. But Mark, you have a fascinating history uh, in the world of tech and software. So yeah, just for people, give them you know a quick backstory on who you are and, and how you got into the world of programming and tech.
0: So who I am, I am a relentless tech geek. I've loved tech my whole life. In fact, my, my Twitter handle is Mark Loves Tech. I have used databases since I was 14 with uh, some really ancient technologies. Started out on a 4K TRS-80 Model 1 computer. We had to program it in assembly language because there wasn't enough memory to use the local basic copy. And I very quickly got into databases and I was talking to someone the other day and he pointed out something I'd never noticed, which is I've oscillated between using databases and building databases so i started out at caltech and nasa using databases for space data and uh, chip data and then i built databases at oracle versions five six seven eight for about 13 years and then i used databases at news corp for huge student data systems and then i built databases at amazon with amazon rds and aurora then i moved to grab taxi which is the uber of southeast asia and use databases to deliver 15 million rides and meals a day And then came back to MongoDB and here I am building databases again. I frankly Mm. can't get away from
1: this. (laughs) (laughs) I love that story. I wonder, does that mean that, you know, at each point you had some sort of frustration or saw some sort of like opportunity for innovation? You know, you kind of would build something, then you'd be the user of it. Then you'd realize that like the next sort of turn of the wheel was coming. As you move between those jobs, were new paradigms and databases emerging?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's been really interesting. Half my career, I've been the bow and half my career, I've been the target. And I got to tell you <laughs> that sometimes as a customer, you're not really happy being the target of what has been produced. But look, the reality is, is relational databases have been the, the modus operandi since 1970 when COD first did his paper. And then Oracle was the first company that released them in 1979. They were actually known as relational technology back then and then changed their name later to Oracle. So the mission criticality of databases has never been in doubt. What has changed is the amount of data, the way we process that data, and what's really, really important. And it used to be duplication of data was important and things like that. And and while that's still important, what's really important now is developer productivity. Bar none. Mm -hmm. That is job one for any mission critical software company is developer productivity and
1: innovation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It does seem like data has become almost this uh, overwhelming force for some companies. Ryan, I don't know if you have experience with this, but I, I've been getting a lot of pitches and, and talking with folks on the podcast. And you know, it's gone from we're using data to we have data lakes, and there's a data iceberg, and you know, we're only sort of scratching the surface of what we might be able to do with this sort of endless flow of unstructured data that we're collecting. Uh, and as you mentioned, yeah, a lot of times what they're looking to do. Is understand it in a way that allows them to enhance productivity or automate certain processes, which right now are very time labor intensive.
2: Yeah, at uh, my my previous job, uh, I worked out on an article about data pipelines, and, you know, ETL processes and that. And like, there's a becoming a separation I think between your production database and the database you use to gain insights. Right, mm. the, the production database has to be fast, but the insight database it can be a little more you know, flexible in how it produces data, right?
0: Yeah, so we think about systems of record. We think about systems of insight. And yeah, I mean, definitely different people want to do different things with the databases. And so what we do is we think about personas. Are you an analyst? Are you a developer? Are you an AI, ML engineer? Are you a PhD data scientist? We always try to come at it from the customer and what they want to accomplish.
1: Yeah, I think that's so interesting because, as you said, obviously, databases have always been part of working in the world of software and computers. But increasingly, there are these specialties that are very important and which are producing these really interesting results that themselves are devoted to data, as opposed to it being something that you know needs to be part of the larger process. And um, so, Mark, I wanted to touch on something, which is that you had uh, part of your career at AWS, which now you know has grown into quite quite a behemoth um yeah just wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about what you learned there and maybe how some of that applies to the role you have at, at mongodB today
0: yeah so I would joined AWS as the general manager of AWS RDS which at that time was probably the largest fleet of databases in the world and that mm-hmm. fleet grew just tremendously while I was there it was it was amazing you know just showing that it's not just databases, it was managed databases that mattered. So RDS did not build any of its own databases. RDS vended, by the time I left, over a million, significantly more than a million, Postgres, MySQL, MariaDB, Oracle, and SQL Server databases. And so the product that we produced was managing those databases. And people love it when their database stays up when the backups and restores work, when you can change parameters, when failover works and all those things. However, over time, as much as I loved running those databases, I became frustrated with how they were shackles almost on customer innovation and customer operability. And so we developed this system called Amazon Aurora, which changed out the storage system underneath Postgres and MySQL. Obviously, we couldn't do that for the commercial databases, and we made those databases so much more resilient, so much more durable, so much more available, but we kept running into the fundamental limits of a rigid architecture, of high failover times, and a single primary architecture, which meant that the blast radius of a system going down or a plan changing in Oracle database, I mean, takes down a whole company. And I can talk more <laughs> about availability. In fact, you'll have trouble stopping me talking about availability <laughs> if you get me started.
2: I mean, that's that's the uh, the big thing about uh, NoSQL is, is availability, right? The replicability, the speed of access.
1: Yeah, for, for folks who don't know, let, let's lay out the value prop here. Like, what is sort of the difference between the two? And why would you prefer one over the other? You know, you mentioned shackles. I love that word. But yeah, you know. What are the limitations that it allows you to avoid when you when you move to a NoSQL? And I guess, you know, to the degree that it makes sense, yeah, talk a little bit about availability, or I guess, you know, what I would say is almost like how robust your system can be.
0: So I do think availability is really important, but from just from a value prop point of view, the main reason that NoSQL was started was multiple things. Number one was this platform availability. I actually think you guys had a podcast with Elliot about a year and a half ago, where he talked about the founding of MongoDB. And I will give a shameless plug for one of your other podcasts, which, which is a great podcast that Elliot did. And you know, in it, he talked about the fact that they wanted to do 400,000 transactions per second and there was no way they could do it. But along the way, they did something even more important, which is they developed the document model. And the document mm-hmm. model is just a natural way to program. When you want to add a field to a NoSQL application, that you're writing, you just add it in your code, in your struct, or in your in your structure in Java or Go or Rust or whatever, and the database automatically starts having that field. So it's not just about availability. Now, mm-hmm. to get to your point about availability, MongoDB uses what's called a sharding architecture or a replica set architecture, where you can't actually configure a MongoDB that doesn't have three nodes and those nodes automatically do elections and they automatically start up. And as opposed to relational databases where failover is measured in 30 seconds, 60 seconds, 90 minutes, 10 seconds, failover in MongoDB is measured in single digit seconds. Our P99.9 election time in our Atlas service is less than seven seconds. And why is that important? Because when an app is down for three to five to seven seconds, people go, huh, huh, what happened? What's going on on my phone? When it's down for 60 seconds, they've already visited another website to complete their purchase. And so there's a fundamental difference. So the ability to stay up and the ability to, to be available is thing one. The second ability is the ability to scale without limit. We have customers running a petabyte in MongoDB clusters. And with over a thousand nodes, you just can't do that with the relational. Even Aurora, which I just got to tell you, I love deeply because I helped architect it. You have one writable master or primary and up to 15 read replicas. And if you run out of the ability of that master or primary to take writes, you're done. You got to now split your database and do crazy stuff. So those were the fundamental premises of databases. So, but the thing that's really missing there is that Developers love databases, but developers do so much more than just store and retrieve data. Developers want to do graphs. Developers want to do analytics. Developers want to have a connection to their mobile device. They, they want to do all this. So what we're doing at MongoDB, and sorry for the brand plug, but I, I'm pretty passionate about it, <laughs> is we're building an application data platform where the correspondence between what we produce and our main persona, the developer, we're trying to get to 100%. So let me tell you a funny story. Before I started at MongoDB as a board member, I wanted to know what this product was. And I was sitting in a bathtub in Mexico drinking a margarita, and I got my (laughs) iPad out, and I said, I don't know, what is this thing? Why am I joining this board? And I spun up a MongoDB database. I loaded 350 meg of application data. I built an aggregation pipeline, and I built a chart, and I did that all sitting in a bathtub on my iPad. I got to tell you, I was sold. This felt like the most yeah. developer-focused database I had ever used. And I got to tell you, I wasn't actually that sober. And so if that tells you something <laughs> about the ease of use,
1: there's another sure. feature sure. for you. Yeah, no, it's interesting <laughs> to hear you say, like, right, uh, the, the ease of using it or even the ease you know, of, of thinking about how you're doing it when you're writing the code. I do remember Elliot Horowitz, who was on you know, a year and a half ago when he was CTO talking about how a lot of it grew out of, right, his own frustration as a developer working with databases. And you, I guess, have kind of a unique perspective having built them and used them in equal parts. But he was definitely coming from, as you said, that persona of like, I'm a developer who's frustrated with this stuff. I built, what was it, uh, DoubleClick, you know, a huge online ad business, but fundamentally felt like what it felt like to work with databases was too frustrating and there had to be a better way. So that was kind of a cool, the, the genesis of it, the inspiration of it was neat because it's very much building the product you yourself would want to use.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think that building a product yourself would want to use, we still do that at MongoDB today. We have developers actually you know, work with customers and come back to the team and go, yeah, I think we could make that thing easier to use. And, and so mm-hmm. we really work hard to keep that connection all the way from our customer success teams to our support teams right back into core engineering.
2: So what are customers right. asking for? What's what's the new things that developers are pushing against with the database world?
0: So that that's a great question. I mean, developers were kind of a picky bunch. And, you know, the first thing we want is we want to be able to sit in our IDE and we want to be able to do our job. So we have a really awesome VS Code plugin, which just lets you do everything you want to do with MongoDB, including prototyping, including data manipulation, right in VS Code. The other thing people want to do is they really, really, really want to not stand up more and more and more infrastructure. So... They don't even want to know how big their machine is anymore. And so we just launched two weeks ago at our dot live conference. We launched serverless, which now you just get that magic endpoint. And then second, about a year and a half ago, we launched search. We have over a thousand customers who use search. But for you developers out there, we did something different than anybody else. And this was an idea before my time, but I can still be proud of how clever it was. We took the Lacine search engine, and rather than standing up a different set of nodes and a different set of clusters, we sat it right beside the Wired Tiger storage engine and MongoDB running on the database nodes. And so there's no duplication of data. And there's no delay and there's no ETL between search and your database. And so literally, you want to stand up that search bar. We did a demo at .live where one of our developer advocates showed that it takes less than five minutes to turn on search, put your search bar in your app, and start searching your MongoDB data with real-time text search in five minutes or less. And so that's what developers want to do. Developers just want to crank on their apps. They want Mm -hmm. to do it sitting in their editor. You know, I love all these people who talk about all these cool things they have. But developers today still have VS Code or Eclipse or IntelliJ or whatever their app is. And then they have about 20 terminal windows open. And so the other thing we (laughs) launched recently is Mongo Shell and Atlas API, where you can actually now provision and control your Atlas instances right from your terminal window. You don't have to go Mm. to a web page and and control everything.
1: Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about some of the new stuff that you're announcing this year, because I know that uh, by the time this podcast comes out, you'll just have had another big event. I guess, you know, like over the years, we've seen Mongo grow in popularity. Obviously, we've seen it be extremely popular year after year on the dev survey. When I see people, you know, sort of trying to argue the opposite, often they talk about a few things, you know, the the loss of the ability to do transactions or, or multiple transaction between different sort of applications. You know, and, and some of the like flexibility, this always happens within development, you know, the the contrary to that would be, oh, well, you've lost some of the the integrity or the data structure, you know, maybe you, maybe we did want a strong schema after all. So I guess, yeah, you know, how would you respond to that sort of like the blowback to Mongo's obviously sort of meteoric rise in popularity Is some of the new stuff that you're introducing meant to address those? Or do you think that, you know, it's really more about like understanding the trade-offs and, and leaning on Mongo's strengths?
0: Yeah, those are great questions. Thank you. So the first thing I'll say is I've been in databases for 35 years and I retired in 2000. I don't need to work. I came to MongoDB because I literally think it is the capstone of my career to build a database endpoint that protects your data, is easy to program against, doesn't require a bunch of DBAs dancing around a database, chanting spells to keep it available. So that's the passion that we talked about at the beginning of the call. Right. I would not have come to a, de- to a company that didn't have transactions in schema enforcement. So MongoDB mm-hmm. launched full ACID transactions in 2018. We've been certified by Jepsen on those transactions. We actually have always had atomic transactions inside documents. Then we launched inside collections. And now you have full ACID transactions across massive clusters. So that's thing one. Now to tell you the truth, a lot of things don't need a transaction. If I'm just recording a web click in a document, that's been atomic since day one with MongoDB. But if I'm recording transferring money from one account to another account, and I'm tying that together with a log transaction in another collection, yeah, you should do an acid transaction with that. Now, I asked my Postgres Aurora team to give me flexible transaction consistency, and they came back and said they couldn't. They said that with relational databases, you just get perfect transaction consistency. So I couldn't back down to get unbelievable ingestion speed without transactional consistency. On MongoDB, you get to choose whatever you want. You can choose low consistency. You can choose high consistency like ACID. And let me tell you something else you can do with MongoDB that you can't do with any other database out there. We have consistency models where you can say, I want this to hit two data centers. We have multi-region and multi-cloud databases, and you can literally set your consistency that this must hit two regions or it must hit two cloud providers. You can't do that with anybody else. Now to your next question on flexibility. Yeah, I mean, I gotta tell you, I love standing up my application and just inserting fields and doing all that. And that's great for POC in an application proof of concept. But yeah, I mean, MongoDB is not a schemaless database. That's been this, I just got to tell you, I think it's a horrific mistake, that use of words. In some ways with MongoDB, you think more about how your application uses data and you structure your schema. And then you can turn on JSON schema enforcement, which is a standard, which we abide by. Where you can get warnings if people do things that are against your defined schema, you can scan Mm. your schema for things that don't obey the the schema definition, or you can actually enforce schema, just like in a relational database. So you ended your question by saying, hey, what are the trade-offs? Are you willing to make the trade-offs? I'm going to tell you right now, you don't have to make the (laughs) (laughs) trade-offs. stand by that statement in the comment string on yeah. this podcast.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll admit that I'm not well versed enough in this to to argue again. I can only raise the questions, but we'll let the commenters weigh in and we can share them with you after.
0: Yeah, You'll have to dive
1: into the comment section after the podcast comes out.
0: <laughs> absolutely.
1: So just a few more questions I wanted to ask. One was, I know, yeah, you had a couple of announcements at, at MongoDB 5.0, the MongoDB Live. So some of this was about uh, time series capabilities and then serverless instances. And serverless is just a trend I've been hearing more and more about from what we've got on the blog and people who are Uh, coming on the podcast. So can you speak to those two announcements just sort of quickly? And I guess, yeah, sort of say like, you know, what it's about and then also how it ties into maybe some of the larger technology trends we're seeing play out across the ecosystem.
0: Yeah. So time series is great. Time series lets you load in data that is organized by time. And because we now have collections that do it right beside your other collections, special time series indexes, special time series operators, people can just have that data in one data store rather than standing up a purpose-built data store. And so that's thing one. Thing two is, Mm -hmm. yeah, you talked about serverless. Serverless is just, you know, it's so powerful for a developer to just get the endpoint and not worry about scaling it up or scaling it down. We are starting with, you know, applications where people just want to get going. We're going to be adding more and more features to serverless over time. And the other thing is it's cost sensitive. Everybody knows mm-hmm. that you want your database to scale down when you're not using it and scale up when you are using it. And while right. MongoDB currently does that with instant sizes will scale up and down, serverless is just so much more granular and such a better experience for developers. So now, now you get a choice of choosing your machine, scaling up and down your machine, or not even yeah. really caring that there's a machine.
2: We've been talking a lot about uh, Kubernetes and other infrastructures code. And I think this having a database as serverless makes a lot of sense for any kind of network application. Like, you know, I I know database engineers who muck around making sure, you know, it's replicating right across data centers or everybody's up at the same time. Just having that endpoint and being like, give me the data. I don't have to mess with the rest of it.
1: Yeah, I think one of the the things that, you know, was pretty inspiring to me was talking to people who were themselves sort of developers, but also founders, entrepreneurs, and how these things that we're talking about this flexibility with these cloud services allows you to scale up and down in a way that really offers you a lot more runway for your business. You know, when there's a big surge in demand, you can handle it. And when there's not, you're not spending nearly as much on your overhead and your infrastructure. So they had mentioned, oh, A Cloud Guru, which does a lot of cool like online training and certification. And like, you know, when there was a big surge in something, they scaled up to meet that demand for the lessons. And when there was a lull, I don't know, summer vacation, you know, like they weren't, they didn't have the same overhead on their bills. So I actually think that's kind of cool beyond just the the coding aspect of it, but also how it affects You know, the ability of entrepreneurs,
0: you know, one of the things that I think I'm really excited about is just the way innovation is now what's really important. And so with MongoDB, because you just stand up in your editor and start coding, you can do that Mm -hmm. with Realm. You can start coding a mobile application and you can bring real time insights with, you know, data lake and analytics and merging it all together. And so. What we're seeing customers do is tear down their, their old relational monoliths and build them in a new modern infrastructure, which just lets them innovate faster. And I mean, that's what customers mm-hmm. want to do today is they want to innovate faster. Like I said, at the beginning of the podcast, you know, the, the constraints that used to be the constraints in the seventies and eighties are no longer the constraints and the constraints now mm-hmm. are how fast can you innovate in the marketplace?
1: Right. Right. And can you keep up with the competition? Uh, (laughs) And can you keep up with the competition
0: when all they have to do is go to a different URL?
1: I will end the episode as I always do. I will shout out the winner of a Lifeboat badge. Somebody who came on Stack Overflow and found a question with a score of negative three or less, gave it an answer and got it up to a score of three or more and got themselves a answer score of 20 or more. Today, I really, I don't know how this question lasted for four years. In a Slack, is there a way to see all members that is part of a channel? Well, I have to say thank you to Eric Calconin for answering the question, but of course, it was closed. Still, if you need that knowledge, it's there on Stack Overflow. I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me at Ben Popper on Twitter. Email us, podcast at stackoverflow.com. And if you like the show, go ahead and leave a rating and a review. It really helps. Ryan, tell the people who you are and where you can be found. Uh,
2: I'm Ryan Donovan. I lurk on Twitter at Arthur Donovan. And if you have a idea for a blog post, please email me at pitches at stackoverflow.com.
0: Hey everybody, I'm Mark Porter and I'm CTO of MongoDB. And you can find me at Mark Loves Tech on Twitter or on LinkedIn at just Mark Porter, pretty easy to find.